Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Guideposts in Motion, a podcast highlighting risks, compliance, and security professionals with insights meant to keep you, your business, and operations moving forward. My name is Eric Young, and I'm a Senior Managing Director at Guidepost Solutions. Today, I'm very excited to welcome to our podcast, Alexandra Smith. Alex is Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division at the U.S. Department of Justice, Eastern District of New York. She previously served as the Chief of the Eastern District's Business and Securities Fraud Section. Alex has an impressive background in investigating and successfully prosecuting a wide variety of criminal matters against both individuals and entities. I'm thrilled that she's agreed to join our podcast and talk about the DOJ's expectations of corporate compliance today and share her insights as a DOJ chief. Alex, welcome to our show, and please tell our listening audience more about your journey to the DOJ. Thank you, Eric, and I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Before I start, I always give my sort of standard disclaimer that everything I'm going to say today represents my opinions um, and my based on my experience and does not represent the views of the Department of Justice or my U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. Um, so with that uh, out of the way, I, um, as you said, I have been with the Eastern District of New York uh, as an Assistant United States Attorney for the past 10 years. I'm currently serving as the Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division And prior to that, I was the chief of our business and securities fraud section, which handles all of our white collar work, as well as a deputy chief in that section as well. Prior to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I also worked at a number of law firms in New York um, doing white collar work, as well as complex commercial litigation, and completed both a district court clerkship and a circuit court clerkship. So I have a lot of experience sort of both on the government side, prosecuting uh, business entities and individuals, as well as on the defense side, uh, representing business entities and individuals. And so hopefully can give a little bit of perspective um, on compliance programs from from both ends of, of the spectrum. Absolutely. It's fantastic to have you here for not just one, but two podcasts, especially with the continuous buzz globally across industries about very visible, visible, passionately welcome, um, and quite vigorous steps that the DOJ is taking to prosecute companies and individuals for their specific criminal violations and misconduct. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's speeches, most notably uh, this month and most, and also last October at the ABA White Collar Crime Conference. And Assistant AG Ken Polite's speeches most recently at the Compliance Week annual conference in Washington make very clear that the DOJ will scrutinize the role, stature, and authority of the chief compliance officer, whether corporate culture evidenced by the company's board of directors, CEO, and C-suite is the right one, and whether a company's corporate compliance program is, quote unquote, working in practice continuously, and that complying effectively today and going forward is a matter of national security. It also makes clear that the DOJ is willing to use monitorships in companies. We're all really excited in the compliance industry about the DOJ's emphasis on serial recidivist violations as a reflection of a company's corporate culture and the role played by the CEO and C-suite. These CEOs and C-suites are excited for very different reasons, of course, because of the DOJ's focus on corporate culture. They'll be much more accountable culpable and potentially found guilty of crimes. 
on that note, I thought it'd be great to talk about the Goldman Sachs 1MDB case, the guilty plea of Goldman um, Asia banker Tim Leisner, and most recently about the April 2022 conviction of the Malaysia Goldman banker Roger Ang, why it's so noteworthy. Could you talk a bit about these uh, cases and, and what's noteworthy? Sure. Um, and again, given that the, the cases are still ongoing in one form or another, I will obviously stick to only information that is already public about the cases. Um, for those who aren't familiar, um, all, both all of these cases that you've talked about stem from the, the 1MDB um, uh, sort of scandal from the sort of 2012-2013 time period. Um, and 1MDB is the, the sovereign wealth fund from Malaysia. And there was a sort of a, a large conspiracy by which uh, Goldman Sachs raised uh, funds for 1MDB in a series of bond offerings. And in connection with those funds being raised, it was a total of about $6 billion over three bond offerings. Um, there were, I think, approximately almost half of that that money was then stolen uh, by individuals connected to the 1MDB um, sovereign wealth fund who were either at the sovereign wealth fund itself or sort of working as an intermediary on its behalf with the aid of several Goldman bankers. Um, and that those funds were used primarily for to bribe a number of individuals um, in the governments of Malaysia and Abu Dhabi. Uh, Abu Dhabi had provided a guarantee for the bond raisings um, and a, approximately $1.6 billion of the stolen funds was used to pay bribes to more than 12 government officials uh, in those two countries. And the remainder uh, were siphoned off as kickbacks uh, for the individuals involved in the uh, bribery and money laundering scheme, including approximately $35 million that went to uh, Goldman banker Roger Ong and uh, approximately $75 to $80 million that went to Goldman Sachs banker Tim Weissner. So that's sort of the, the background of the scheme. In October of 2020, uh, my office, along with the FCPA unit um, in uh, Maine Justice and the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section of Maine Justice, uh, char charged and had Goldman plead guilty to uh, violations of the FCPA for their role in the scheme. Um, and they paid what is now the, the sort of largest corporate um, resolution in connection with an FCPA case and had fines and forfeiture paid both in the United States as well as in several foreign countries. And it was nine domestic and foreign uh, regulators and law enforcement entities that sort of coordinated on that global corporate resolution. And then we also charged three individuals in connection with that case, um, Roger Ong and Tim Leisner, who are Goldman Sachs bankers, and then an individual named Joe Lowe, who is the sort of main intermediary for 1MDB for this scheme. And so uh, Tim Leisner pled guilty to a cooperation agreement, and Roger Ong went to trial uh, starting in February of this year, and was convicted on all counts in April of this year. And that was a trial that I worked on along with colleagues from my office, from MLARS, as well as from the FCPA unit. 
And I think from a compliance perspective, what's particularly notable about the trial of Roger Ong is that it's the first trial um, ever, so the first criminal case to ever go to trial with a charge of uh, violating the FCPA's internal accounting controls provision, uh, which is in uh, 15 U.S.C. 78 uh, little m is the statute. And, and basically, this section of the FCPA criminalizes circumventing a corporation's internal accounting controls. Um, and again, a number of uh, corporate resolutions have come out over the years where companies have agreed uh, to plead guilty to this charge, and individuals related to those companies have agreed to plead guilty. But it's the first time that the, the count was actually tested uh, at a trial and jury instructions uh, were discussed and argued about and promulgated. Um, so it's from a compliance perspective, really interesting because when we talk about an effective compliance program, that would obviously include effective internal accounting controls. Mm-hmm. And the question of what does it mean for an individual to circumvent or to sort of thwart those internal accounting controls and, and what would make that those actions criminal or were really sort of part of what was at the center of this case. It was one of the three counts charged and the jury ultimately found uh, Roger on guilty of it. So, um, and there was a lot of back and forth between the government and defense counsel and ultimately defense filed a rule 29 motion saying um, that, that we had improperly charged um, internal accounting controls and that the jury instructions that we proposed were incorrect. And in fact, that, we had not provided sufficient evidence to show circumvention. Um, so it was really sort of at the heart of this case. It really it struck a lot of uh, struck a lot of chords in the compliance industry as, as well because um, one, the amount of the penalty, two, the level of coordination um, across the globe with regulators. Three, just the accountability of individuals uh, really came out loud and and clear. And those are themes consistent with the Deputy Monaco's and um, Assistant AG police speeches about the prosecution and and enforcement approach, particularly around recidivist behavior. Can you talk a bit about that and and how and where monitorships fit in? Sure. Um, So, Uh, Lisa Monaco, who's our Deputy Attorney General of the Department of Justice, gave a big speech back uh, last October uh, 2021 uh, at the ABA's uh, National Institute on White Collar Crime and really laid out um, for for everybody and for the public sort of the, the department's approach to corporate crime under the current administration and some areas of focus under the current administration um, which you know then serves as sort of guidance for how all of the prosecutors in the Department of Justice, both in the main justice components as well as in the U.S. Attorney's offices, will sort of look at um, corporate crime and and sort of how they are evaluating companies when they're thinking about whether to charge or not to charge. Um, and and her speech really sort of focused on three. Um, areas of of change, although I will say at various points in the department's history, these three areas um, sort of have been emphasized or de-emphasized in different ways. So a lot of times when we talk about sort of policy 
in the corporate uh, criminal misconduct area, we're really talking about dialing up and dialing down different factors that various Department of Justice attorneys are looking at when when they're sort of making these charging decisions. Um, and so, as I said, there were, there were sort of three areas um, that that Lisa Monaco focused on. The first is um, the focus on individual prosecutions. Uh, for a little bit of history, the you know traditionally, obviously, and and in the Justice Manual forever has been you know the the department wants to focus on corporate uh, criminal misconduct, but they also want to focus on the individuals who make up a corporation, since a corporation is itself a, a fictional entity and is made up of individuals, mm-hmm. um, and so. The, the priority, you know, which he laid out at the speech was that we're going to continue to focus on individual um, accountability. And that was sort of focused on this language from the original Yates memo, which is from 2015 when Sally Yates was the DAG, uh, which talked about um, for to be eligible for cooperation credit. So a company that is going to, um, is facing potential criminal charges, but wants to receive credit for cooperating with the department. Um, Starting in 2015, the guidance was uh, that in order to be eligible for that credit, companies needed to provide the department with all non-privileged information about individuals involved in or responsible for the misconduct. Um, That was sort of the, what was laid out in the Yates memo. Under the last administration, that language was sort of dialed back a little bit um, to say that it, it wasn't necessarily all information about all individuals, but sort of narrowed to individuals um, who were sort of very most directly involved in the misconduct. And there there were a couple of language tweaks to sort of make that clear. And Lisa Monaco said, we're moving back basically to the Yates memo and to make it more expansive. So if a company wants to get cooperation credit, they really need to be providing all possible information about individuals that are at all related to the misconduct at issue. And so that was the first major change that she announced. The second change is the, was one of the ones that you mentioned uh, in your introduction, Eric, which has to deal with uh, the company's history of misconduct and how that affects uh, charging decisions and also the form of any corporate resolution. And the change that uh, Lisa Monaco announced was, you know, traditionally in the sentencing guidelines, um, when we're talking about an individual, uh, there's a whole section on how you calculate that individual's uh, criminal history and their prior convictions. Uh, in the Justice Manual for Corporations, that had always been sort of more focused on similar misconduct. Um, so, you know, if you had an FCPA case and there was a prior FCPA case against the same company, that would be considered sort of a history of criminal misconduct. But if you had an FCPA case and you had a prior, say, criminal tax violation, that was not necessarily considered um, prior criminal misconduct for the company such that when you're looking for a resolution, they were considered a recidivist. And so the second major change um, that Lisa Monaco announced was to sort of broaden what we consider when we're talking about a company's history of misconduct. And, and taking sort of the, a, a larger view of what might constitute prior misconduct and which companies might be considered, you know, for lack of a it's sort of a colloquial term, bad actors or recidivists and, and taking a broader view of that. And then the third and final um, change that she announced, and again, these are all of degree, 
um, was also something you mentioned, which had to do with monitorships, uh, which is, you know, when a company resolves with the Department of Justice, one option uh, that the department always has is to impose a monitor for a period of years that sort of works with the company on compliance issues um, and sort of reports back to the department on uh, how the compliance program is functioning, any additional issues that arise, usually during the term, um, a three-year term of either a DPA or an NPA, and, and sort, of, sort of raises any additional issues to the department and, and really helps oversee the process of improving that compliance program. Um, that, that's always been an option for the department. Under the last administration, uh, that was sort of de-emphasized. Um, and I think there's a discussion around what the language was you what the language actually said, but sort of the policy was that monitors are expensive and they're invasive for companies and they really should only be used in exceptional circumstances. And what Lisa Monaco said was that under this administration, sort of monitorships are um, back on the table in the sense of, you know, we're not going to say they're disfavored. We're going to say that they're an option the way that they always have been, um, but, but we're going to impose them regardless of sort of cost or invasiveness if they're appropriate. And that that was sort of the third change that she focused on. It, it seems, in, in fact, that uh, the combination of the, the three, particularly the third, uh, including the emphasis on whether the compliance program is, in fact, working and in practice, the role of the monitor becomes even more important to uh, reinforce and validate that the program is, is sustainable for the, for the long run. And taking that into combination with the, the recidivist or misconduct behaviorally from the past, it connects the past behavior with the future sustainability of, of compliance. It, is that a fair statement? And particularly the key in this is, are the monitors and any thought as to what makes one monitor uh, better than, than another or more effective than another? So, you know, there's, there's a, a bunch of sort of guidance memos that the department has put out over the years. Um, the Morford memo is one. Um, and there was actually the Benjikowski memo under the last administration that lay out guidance for sort of what, how, not only how we select a monitor, but what the role is supposed to be. Um, I think in my experience, I, I worked on the Odebrecht and Brascom FCPA prosecutions. Those were uh, Brazilian companies that were paying bribes um, in the case of Odebrecht in 12 countries uh, in South America, South and Latin America. Uh, over a period of you know 16 years, more than a billion dollars of bribes, and they were companies that really had no compliance program at all. And we had monitors in in place for both of those uh, companies as part of their criminal resolutions. That was a unique situation because neither company really had a functioning compliance program. Uh, so the monitor was really there to help them build from the ground up. Uh, you know, a compliance program and, and how it should work and and sort of really changed culturally at those companies, sort of the mindset about, you know, what compliance's purpose is and, and how a compliance department should be run. That I think is at the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, most companies have some sort of compliance program in place. And so I think the most effective monitors are the ones that are really targeted at 
the aspects of the compliance program that were not functioning properly, such that the misconduct, uh, you know, the criminal misconduct uh, was allowed to occur. And so whether that's focusing on, um, you know, third party vendors and the process for vetting and selection, or um, if it has to do with, you know, sort of the approval process within the company such that one person, um, you know, with improper supervision had too much control over the process and thus was able to direct funds improperly, whatever sort of the root cause of the underlying misconduct is, that's where the monitor should be most focused. Um, you know, sometimes the criticism of monitors is they sort of get in there and then they they have no specific uh, focus and they're just sort of, you know, costs can balloon and, and they can sort of be looking at everything and not not very targeted. But I think the best monitors are the ones that really understand the root cause of the underlying misconduct, and then focus on the systems necessary to address that and where the weaknesses are in the existing compliance system and and what needs to change. And then, you know, I think monitors are always very good at taking the large view of, you know, is the company empowering uh, compliance generally and what is the culture you know, so what are the attitudes internally, particularly on the business side of the company um, and flagging sort of, you know, they, they do a lot of interviews and they sort of, they get that big picture in terms of culture and can really help um, sort of a company turn the corner and, and make compliance more integrated uh, in terms of the, the sort of the business end of a company. Absolutely. I, I've always said throughout my career that I, re-engineer compliance programs to enable responsible growth. Because ultimately, in the case of monitors, I view them um, as helping the company independently, of course, but getting them to the point that they do have uh, an empowered compliance program, a CCO, and most importantly, success in a responsible way. Is, Is that a fair statement or approach? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that you know a successful monitor is really working with the company to make it better rather than the attitude of being sort of a watchdog who's then going to report back to the Department of Justice. And not that that doesn't happen or isn't important to identify problems and raise them. But I think the most successful monitors are the ones who work with the company. Um, and, and at the end of the process, the company, as you said, has sort of taken, to, had sort of a shift in how they view compliance and are empowering them such that it's the you know individuals at the company who are issue spotting and dealing with problems before they become, yes. you know, rise to the level of criminal misconduct. Um, and so it really is sort of an aid to the company um, to improve that aspect of 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 how the company runs and how issues are uh, raised and and resolved, such that you don't have these problems again, rather than sort of an outside force that's you know sort of just laying down the law. It really should be a collaborative effort that results in a stronger compliance program. Absolutely, Alex, as uh, deputy chief of the Department of Justice, it's been fantastic hearing your insights on these topics, and there's so much more I'd I'd love to discuss, including the DOJ's pronouncement around sanctions being um, the new FCPA, so to speak, particularly around national security and and, um, its heightened 
focus on corporate culture and accountability. And we'll, and we'll be talking about uh, CEO and CCO certifications because that's created a lot of buzz in the industry, uh, in my view, in a good way. But we'll talk about that next time. So I really look forward to hearing more from you on these topics in our next podcast. Thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our listening audience for tuning in. For more information on enhancing your company's compliance program, please visit our website at guideposttsolutions.com.